Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, we're back for another another exciting week, another hot uh, day. We've been in a heat wave here in the Bay Area. Kira, how are you guys holding up? It's fine. It's good. It feels like summer a little bit, and yeah. which is good. I suppose I'm a little bit in summer denial. It's the last week of school. For, oh, wow. uh, so next week is completely unscheduled <laughs> and I'm unprepared, but we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I, I guess I probably didn't mention this, but um, maybe it was last week. I uh, moderated a panel for a bunch of, uh, for a group of people in the Bay Area. It's an organization called Spur that I'm on the board of. And uh, we we're talking about all of the things that parks are needed for. One of the things I'd never thought of this, yeah. but it's um, they're oftentimes the locations for children's summer camps mm-hmm. and like parks in these different sort of eras. Now they're trying to figure out what aspects of it, it was, it was mind boggling to me to think about it because of course a lot of people just think like, Oh, it's parks. It's, you know, trails and right stuff, but really they have so many functions and, in particular, children in the summertime is like yep. a, they, they it's a it's a civic service. <laughs> Absolutely. Have. Yeah, yeah. So 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 no summer camps or anything. No summer camps. I mean, some are trying to get organized and find ways to do that um, with social distancing, but I don't know. I have a ten-year-old boy. I'm not sure what that would look like. <laughs> um, <laughs> We'll see. I, I, we won't. We probably won't do any. I'm sure that there are lots of other folks that actually um, desperately need them more than we do um, for their sure. work. Yeah, and things like that. And there, so the demand is very high. And I feel like we don't have. We are not um, in critical need actually. So, <laughs> but it's but you know, and only a few of them are doing it, and so they're selling out really fast. And it's also just very tricky to organize, just like school will be in the fall. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of things. Just really yeah, to figure it out. Yeah. Yep. But it, it is, I mean, it's just part of the, you know, the new, the now, what we're doing. Now. Yeah. Um, the new era. So, which is fine. It's, yeah. Um, I don't know. There's, it's, all of it is different. It's a different way of thinking about a lot of, a lot of things, really everything. Um, I, I listened to a conversation last week. Um, Janine Benyus of the Biomimicry Institute was talking about, um, she was on a, it was a conversation with Azita Ardakani, who's a communications professional. And they were talking about um, how this has forced us all to be very present in our places. And yeah. kind of to your point about parks, like understand how the parks are part of our ecosystem so much, our social ecosystem, actually, you know, and, and those kinds of things. And really so many things about our systems are so abstracted for us that this is like a big mind shift now thinking about, food chain, food supplies, and all the, you know, p- 
people, the systems that are required to get things around and get things to people. And I don't know, it's just an, it, it's been a big mind shift, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And some of that is a really good thing, you know? Yeah. I think, so. I think for all of us, like that level of having to be in the present moment um, is unusual and probably good in some ways. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a struggle and in all sorts of ways, but um, yeah, I was, I was thinking about this actually just today. I was noticing a lot of, uh, well, I always follow social media, but I've been following it more recently. And I've, I've also made sort of a conscious effort to curate my social media around things that I want to pay attention to rather than sort of like everything. Yeah. All of it. <laughs> um, and in particular, a lot of those things come down to sort of issues around social justice. And, and I've been noticing, and maybe this is just me, but a lot of the violence, and um, really injustice around um, race in America, black people that have been uh, killed, et cetera, in various unjust ways in the past few yep. months. I, I feel like more people are paying attention. They're getting more headlines. It's like, a, and I wonder if that is because we're not as distracted by all the other things that we're typically distracted by. Um, that we yeah including a lot of the sort of very uh surfacey things right yeah all those yeah. things that matter less because it feels yeah. like paying attention to that stuff right now just seems silly yeah <laughs> yeah it does and it's not I mean I also I don't want to make it sound like I think like something is inherently changing or getting better but it, it is it's been um I don't know there's I, I I'm interested to see how this shakes out and whether all of us having a little bit more time to just not get distracted or not be you know commuting and doing dealing with a million different things but like you know you have to stand in line at the grocery store and people read things more and <laughs> all yeah. of that whether that helps us to reset a bit you know our our consciousness of um, things that are actually important to us um, so may, maybe just a wish for yes for things um, for for us in these times uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a <laughs> just every every week getting used to something new. Um, yeah, I, I guess I don't. I wish I had another like tidbit um, as as you do of cool stuff that I've been reading or absorbing. But to be honest, I think we've probably been like I'm a little bit in the. And well, I I will say I'm in my fourth dystopic future book now i'm reading a book called uh, oh, New York maybe you want to you might want to do a little genre relief in yeah there. <laughs> i'm actually starting to get to be like i should probably move on um, <laughs> but yeah i'm reading uh, new york 2140 which is um it's a oh. novel um which is really um it's um kim stanley robinson is the author but it's uh basically like about sea level rise in new york in the year 2140 so if anyone's looking for oh, wow. a fun and yet disturbing uh, book, that's one you could read. Great. <laughs> Noted. Yeah. I, I will put it on the list for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's a thing. Um, but yeah. All right. Well, let's get started with our guest for today. Um, very happy to have Eden Bruckman with us. Um, hi, Eden. Welcome. Greetings, ladies. It's a treat to be here. Yeah, thank you. It's a treat to have you uh, for so many reasons. Um, so so for folks who don't know, Eden is the Senior Green Building Coordinator for the City of San Francisco, 
but she's also had a lot of different roles in the industry prior to that. Um, and really all of those roles, including the one that, you, that you're in now, Eden, are why we wanted you to be on the show. I, I think of Eden as being someone who's just always, oh, at the cutting edge, at the leading edge, maybe is the better way of putting it. Um, and just so thoughtful and so um, like productive in your work. Uh, so we're going to, I think, yeah. get through a lot today. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, Lance Hosey, who's my co-author on Women in Green, um, was in a session with Eden the other day. And, and the way he, he made a point about her that it, this is totally true. I just hadn't thought about it this quite this way, which is that um, Eden has touched so many pieces of so many things within the green building industry that are really um, important linchpins or change elements. Um, and we can talk about several of those, but really that she has been present at creating or shaping so many of those. Um, and that's why we're really excited she's here today. So thank you. Thank you. And maybe just to get us started, actually, Eden, the best place, the best thing to do would be um, just tell us um, a little bit for our listeners about how and why you got involved in this industry, generally what your path has been. Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a long path. I, and <laughs> I promise I, I'll, I'll, I'll jump around a little bit. We won't go through um, all the steps. But I, I think it's funny. I was thinking about this and it kind of goes back to when I was eight years old. I uh, proclaimed to my parents that I wanted to be an architect and also write and illustrate children's books. Perhaps we'll cover that later. Um, I can't, <laughs> couldn't really articulate it then, but I was just so curious about the ways that people shape the world around them and, and then how it shapes us in return. And then in addition to that, I was also kind of a, a little activist. Um, I, I can remember being triggered by a 60 Minutes episode when I was a kid. My parents were watching and overhearing a news story and sitting down and writing a letter to the first lady and joining campaigns for the ethical treatment of animals, but being too young to, to take action myself directly. So I persuaded my teachers to sign petitions and show up at events. So I guess I felt empowered at a pretty young age to use my voice and to, to do something, what, even if it was limited, um, about things that I thought were important to me. So um, coming back to architecture, um, I went to UC Berkeley and was finally taught some formal applications around ecological design and, and better understood you know, passive systems and material selection, community building, and all these critical knowledge blocks by some of the best professors in the industry um, at the time and who I continue to just be inspired by um, as some of them are still, still practicing um, today. And I continued with architecture for about a decade and then segued into green building consulting um, in-house. And then I pivoted um, pretty significantly into outreach and education. And I think I was really looking for a better toolkit. I found that as an architect, the, the schedules and the delivery methods and the abbreviated design phases, none of them really lent well to accountability for the impact of our decisions. I mean, we're talking about taking up land and space and resources and materials ongoing for decades and decades. And sometimes these decisions were being made on a whim on a Saturday morning. It was just a flick of a pen. And I just found that very difficult to, to come to terms with. Um, and so pivoting to outreach and education kind of led me to the development of standards and certifications because I knew if I needed them and I felt like I needed some help and guidance that others probably did as well. 
Right. Um, can you talk a little bit specifically about why you chose to work with the city of San Francisco as well? Sure. So at that point, um, I joined the city in 2017, in the fall of 2017. And at that point, I'd been consulting for several years and I was ready to find my next work family. Um, that's kind of how I put it out to, to my network. Help me find my next work family. Um, and I think I felt drawn to the city scale arena in a way that I hadn't before. Uh, in part, it was due to the national politics at the time um, and the realization that cities would have even more responsibility, um, that we would, they would also have a tremendous opportunity for climate action, but mm -hmm. just that scale of having a complete system to work within um, where everything had a, a boundary, but it was comprehensive. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. And at the same time, I was starting to do a lot of community organizing in my own neighborhood in Oakland. And it just felt really good to make tangible connections. Um, I think in the fall of 2017 and the month leading up to that, you know, mm -hmm. leading up to that, you know, we were all kind of struck with, you know, how do we, how do we fit in into this kind of unfolding landscape, right. um, unfolding reality in the United States. So that was sure. a big part of it. Sure. Well, it's really cities had such an opportunity to step up. There was such a vacuum of leadership too from the top in terms of the Paris Agreement and so many other things. It seems like there was really a great opportunity for leadership there. Um, oh, absolutely. Moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, so I guess when the, when the opportunity came up at the Department of the Environment, I was really excited. Um, the, you know, San Francisco has a long history of bold, progressive policy and proven results um, and was very vocal. Um, you know, San Francisco um, was the site that held the Global Climate Action Summit on, um, on behalf of then Governor Jerry Brown in 2018. So very much feel that responsibility as a, as a city to do what we can around climate action. But also, you know, a couple of things, uh, if I may, about the department that I don't know that a lot of people know about, I think is pretty interesting and, and, and unique. Um, first, the green building team that, that I'm on um, in the department is co-located, you know, or co-housed within um, the different program areas. Uh, green building is partnered with climate and environmental justice as one team, whereas other programs have their own team. So I really could appreciate that comprehensive, again, that like that lens that we're looking mm -hmm. at green building through the lens of climate and always with respect to environmental justice. Mm -hmm. and, and then the department is also mission driven. So it operates more like a nonprofit within a government framework. So we actually don't receive general funds. Um, we receive money from grants and work orders from other departments so we can truly be mission driven. So um, whereas a traditional nonprofit does education and outreach and their output is advocacy at the Department of Environment. We also do education and outreach, but our output is policy, which I think is pretty neat. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, to that point, I, I did want to ask you a little bit about that, the sort of larger scope of what you're working on, including, and I mean, I think that decarbonization is a big area that you've been touching, and maybe there are others you can mention. Oh, sure. So yeah, um, kind of at the core of climate action is decarbonization. So we're doing a lot around both operational and embodied carbon. Um, the operational carbon, we had recent policy uh, at the beginning of, 
of this year in January to curb the use of natural gas in new construction. So municipal buildings, no new construction can have a, a connection to natural gas. And we use a, kind of an electric preferred pathway for um, the private development. And then from that, that was kind of our our stepping stone. Um, and then Mayor Breed uh, put together the Zero Emission Buildings Task Force to chart a roadmap to electrify all buildings in San Francisco by 2050. So the Department of Environment's been convening those meetings and, and those work groups. We have um, work groups for municipal buildings, private development, and then also residential development. Um, and it's all that that has had a very strong equity lens through it um, with meetings with hundreds of stakeholders through, throughout the city um, and experts on the topic, um, as well as residents um, who have um, very passionate ideas on, on how we can move this forward in a way that doesn't leave anyone behind or leave anyone with an un, undue or unnecessary kind of slice of the slice of the pie. Um, that's going to be a big, that's going to be a big part of it. And then, in addition to operational carbon, I'm really excited about our efforts on embodied carbon, um, particularly as it relates to material reuse and truly honoring the materials that we already have in our buildings. Right. Wow. That's a lot, Eden. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have a lot question. going on at the department. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's really inspiring. And yeah, it gives me a lot of hope um, to see that just the volume of activity and covering all those different areas. I'm just wondering, are there any specific projects that you're working on now that you would want listeners to know about? Sure. So I started to mention on the embodied carbon side of things, um, yeah. how we're looking at material reuse. And um, this is really fun. Um, we have a building materials management team. We're kind of, um, kind of grew out naturally from this collaboration in our department. And it's zero waste, green building, climate, and um, with a with a little touch of EJ of environmental justice and toxics reduction thrown in for good measure, of course. Um, but we're looking at a number of ways um, to find the best interventions uh, to, to, as I mentioned, you know, just really honor the materials that we have. So we're looking at uh, deconstruction policies, at increased separation of materials on the job site, and trying to build local and regional markets for material reuse, whether it's to help climate refugees have access to affordable materials, or just to keep those materials out of the landfill and be honored for their highest and best use. Um, so thinking about this primarily with respect to commercial opportunities, since you know, residential does have some of that framework already in place um, through outfits like urban or, or building resources, but what can we do on a bigger scale to really allow this to have traction and, you know, start to reframe some of our kind of big questions about how we design, how do we move this from being a kind of a tailpipe problem of our land, you know, managing landfills to a design mm -hmm. problem of how do we approach um, how we design and build our, our structures so that they can be, um, mind later for materials um, or as, as it's called in Europe, there's a, a emerging theme of buildings as material banks where the materials not only retain their value, but you can even like, think about them as selling their future uses um, and actually kind of flip the script on how we think about um, what is the purpose of a building and, and what is the purpose of that material um, short term and long term. Yeah, I really love that concept. Yeah, me too. It's I think one of the things that's so 
exciting about it is the the types of questions that it gets you to start answering these issues of like you know what is something really made out of and where is it actually coming from and where is it really going and i i think it's hard to get to true sustainability without really appreciating all of those dynamics not just the what but like all of the uh sort of pressures that we have when we're dealing with materials uh so i'm particularly excited about it and it's, it just seems really cool to be dealing with it at the city level too when i first heard that you were doing this um that was what struck me most was that you know we all kind of have had that thought before i think many of us in the industry like oh man wouldn't it be great if we could take this you know flooring and send it over to these other guys and flooring manufacturers even try to do that but it turns out to be really complicated but at a city scale there's a certain elegance to that notion that you don't have at other scales you know oh absolutely and you know we're also very fortunate to be in an enlightened area right so we are also talking with other counties in the area. Some of this is not going to be even at a city level, but really at a multi-city or multi-county level um, where we each have our assets and we each have our, you know, kind of our limitations. And how can we share those with each other to really create um, solutions that, that can work for even more people, but that without, without some of those critical pieces might not work for anyone. Yeah. And if, if I may, I also just want to, tell like a bit of a story for our listeners in case it's not uh, already clear why this stuff gets complicated and is important. But when I was in my previous job, one of the earliest challenges that I was given by my colleagues was the issue of the office chair and its reusability. Because essentially what would happen is we would order a bunch of office chairs to go to a particular location. They would be boxed up, you know, not fully uh, assembled and therefore sort of more packed in more efficiently. Then they get to the site, they get put together, and then essentially people, they may not end up getting used at all at that particular site. They may end up getting, you know, they, they, we have too many chairs for a particular location, uh, but they're brand new chairs, they've just been put together, etc. But then it means that you can't effect, you can't cost effectively move them anywhere and so it becomes essentially cheaper to throw them away a new chair than it, it is to move it or do, you know do anything with it and even you know donation services like we looked into all the stuff it was incredibly non-scalable the act of trying to get a brand new chair into the world after it had been assembled <laughs> like wow yeah like literally it was the cost of 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 buying the chair and assembling the chair and getting the chair to its site was uh, less than the cost would be to ship the chair to like a warehouse where it could sit until it got, you know, bought by somebody. It was like, this just stunning. So, you know, it just kind of, it's like these material flows thing. It's not just a simple matter of like, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> everybody agreeing that it would be nice to reuse stuff. There's, there are real, like right. real logistical challenges um, that Eden is tackling here. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Um, so um, speaking of things we're all eternally grateful for Eden, I wanna ask you about, um, about standards and the creation of standards and all of that, going back a little bit to your earlier days working on, in particular, on a living building challenge. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that process of working on it, um, and 
how you know how you made some of the decisions that you did and all of that in the in the challenge itself but then also sort of how you think about uh this phenomenon that has emerged around the checklist mentalities um that that exist around systems and a living building challenge i understand that was a big uh part of what you thought about in the creation of it sure so the living building challenge um i think you know it's a it's an interesting certification program that we really aim for it to be performance-based and that's, that can be complicated with checklists. Um, it's hard to demonstrate. Um, and one way that I, I hope that we were successful with it is um, kind of taking a step back. I, I kind of tend to like to take a, step, a few steps back from the immediate issue to better see the context for it. It's kind of gives us a, a different perspective than a checklist or a single thing. Um, you know, so often we race to find solutions. So we tend to run down that list of questions one by one and it leads to a lot of different activity. And sometimes those activities are counterproductive. And I like I liked to say um, when I was running the program that we were looking for ways to, to solve problems, not shift them. And so we would try to get back to that vantage point of what is the ultimate goal? What is that ultimate aim? Where do we, what does success look like? Okay, then how do we write the requirement to that instead of you know, what we know we don't want. So certainly focusing on what we want instead of what we don't want. And then acknowledging that there are limits to our collective knowledge. There are things that we cannot do today because there are certain market realities. So how do we respond to them? And instead of saying, well, it's not possible today, let's not talk about it, come up with ways for us to interject those limitations into the standard and have those also become mechanisms for tracking success on a project. So. Um, an example of that would be like with the red list where, um, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion about the red list. Um, some folks think that it's intended to be a comprehensive compilation of chemicals of concern. Um, but really it was intended to identify some of the worst in class chemicals that the building industry uses disproportionately so that we had a really significant opportunity to make change. And it was meant to create opportunities also for co really communi communication done differently. How could we be more cooperative in our approach instead of that whole, you know, blame and shame game? <laughs> so um, giving people something to focus on and giving them ways to understand that we need to be in this together, that instead of accusing a manufacturer um, of trying to do something uh, that, that might have, you know, either health issues or other ecological impacts that were uh, undesirable um, to say to, to them, these are what, this is what I need. This is what I'm looking for. This is what my client is hoping to achieve. You know this product better than I do. You know this process better than I do. Help us meet our goals and help us better understand what's necessary. Help us better understand where you're at. And I think that that's um, kind of a very different process. And, and we saw overnight reformulations of, of, of products. We saw teams able to achieve things that they didn't think was even possible. So I'm a really big fan of, of understanding the system and mapping the players and the current interrelationships, as well as the reasons for those connections, because you know, sometimes a dependency exists because something else is broken. And 
I really mm-hmm. enjoy finding those kind of optimal points of intervention. And I, I guess we were, when we were um, originally talking about this, I mentioned that how inspired I am by Janelle Meadows and places to intervene in a system. And I think she, you know, it's ideal when, as she says, a small shift in one thing can produce big changes in everything. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that gets kind of the, the crux of systems thinking and, and kind of approaching pr- big problems in a, maybe a different way. Yeah, and just to underscore that point for listeners who may not have heard of uh, Danella Meadows or her book, um, I I think it's actually funny how many people probably don't know of her book and of her work, but do know the concept of systems thinking um, Mm -hmm. and like know that that's a thing. So if you haven't read the book, it's such a great book, um, and and it really does. I think it's it embodies um, a particular style of of work. Um, and when I say work, I kind of mean the work of changing the industry that I've always found to be, it's the, it's what I like to do. And, and I've, and, um, and I certainly see, I mean, Eden has mastered this in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's very different from saying something like, um, what does a perfect building look like? We're going to sit down and write it down, define it, and then, assume that that will sort of somehow precipitate change. It's really asking what forces are at work here? Um, where are the opportunities to change and how does that work? And I mean, that's one of the things I like about the, the way you were just talking about the red list is that you, you made the red list in thinking about how it would be used and, um, mm-hmm. and wanting to create an object that would be used in a certain way. <laughs> and, then, and that's sort of, that's why it, it became what it became, not, as you said, because, um, because you were compiling a, a, some sort of a factual list. It was a tool. It was meant to be a tool, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing that's funny about the red list is that I can't tell you how many people came up to me later or communicated me, with me later. Like you rewired my brain. I, I can't just go out and buy a couch for my own house anymore, or buy a pair of shoes anymore. Now I have to think about everything. And I, you know, um, so even I, I feel like that that was the goal, of course, but <laughs> but I think you know we don't have to present people with the entire universe in order to shape their entire universe or change the way they see it and understand it. And I think that that's such a um, a critical thing too when we we're talking about social movements and and the kind of scale of change that we are seeking. Yeah. So so moving to that scale of the movements um, and just. Uh, your sense of where we are. I'm curious about where you feel like we've made the most progress versus the least progress as a as a movement. And I guess when I say movement, I'm sort of defining it as sustainability in the building sector specifically. Sure. I mean, gosh, you know, in you, as you were talking at the at the beginning of, of this program about you know sheltering in place and this the things that we're doing differently in response to the pandemic, I can't help um, but think about how we're so aware right now, just hyper aware of the symbiotic relationship between us and our surroundings, um, and how our places for those of us who have a, a set space have become kind of havens for us, and. I hope that the sense of belonging connection continues so that we can continue to make more progress, but it's that kind of intrinsic sense of purpose or belonging or impact um, that is where, like, where the progress is made. And I, I think that we've, you know, certainly we have seen some incredible strides all 
all over uh, sustainability in the building industry. Um, and of, of course, there's still a lot of work to do. We've We've already, you know, elevated the conversation, particularly in energy, um, whether, whether it's efficiency or renewables or clean energy and um, greenhouse gas impacts. And, you know, with water, that's an area that could benefit from more attention. But we're starting, you know, San Francisco has a policy where buildings over 250,000 square feet have to you know, treat back to potable, treat for reuse. Um, how do we how do we think about that system, you know, and our 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 use cycle um, differently. Materials, what's one of the reasons I love it so much is because it's so complicated. We need a lot of progress there. And at the same time, we've never been better positioned due to decades of success. Um, conversations, whether it was about sourcing or certifications and responsible extraction or just contaminants and health issues and, and now embodied carbon impacts. Like we're, we've really touched on a lot of the issues. Now it's a question of where do we go next and how do we maintain and build on that momentum? Yeah, and so, uh, and I, I would love to hear you say where we go next. I think in particular, you know, it's the year 2020. And uh, I think for a lot of us, I don't know, I think I, we've talked about this a little bit, but there's a sense that we need to be doing a lot more. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about where we are? Do you think that the momentum is as fast as it needs to be, et cetera, et cetera? Hmm. Well, I guess I've been working in this field for about two and a half decades now. And I think when I thought about 2020 back then, I kind of thought that the movement would be bigger or more universal or kind of more kind of woven into how each person felt that their role shaped human habitat. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I don't take for granted the progress that has been made as a result of just so many people's commitment and passion and curiosity. So I think it's a balance, um, a, a little bit of a balance of, you know, um, I, I've been called an idealistic realist um, <laughs> in that way. And that like, I, I do just believe that we're inherently good and, and that we all want what's best. And, you know, at the same time, you know, it's, it can be disappointing at times. So, um, but I think that's also, you know, this, this need for us to continue moving forward. It's part of the reason that mentoring is so important to me. Um, when people ask, you know, what is, what is that one thing that we can do right now? My answer is typically like mentor young people, mentor people who are looking for change in their current work and their current output, who are hungry to do something that has some a response bigger than themselves. Um, because this is going to be an ongoing issue for generations and generations. It will never end, um, certainly won't end in any of our lifetimes. So I think the biggest thing that we can do, you know, for thinking about 2020 or where we're going next is to ensure that we've each, you know, brought hundreds, if not thousands of people along with us. Um, if each of us took the time every week to have a couple of conversations with people who are wanting to contribute and not sure how, uh, think about how different next year will be. And um, I try to do that um, pretty much every week. I have a few conversations with people in that position. And I have to say, I think I get more out of it than they do sometimes. Eden, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I wanted to ask you about mentorship because I know it's something important to you. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about 
not only how you do it, but um, maybe how how you recommend young people seek it out, like any tips you would have either from on either end of that <laughs> exchange. Well, I, I find that the, peop the people who are propelled to action to find, kind of find their way in, right? Um, and, you know, people reach out in any number of ways. And I guess I'm, I find it really hard to say no. I don't say no to things, even things that I probably should say no to. Um, and, and like I said, like I get more out of this than they do, but um, so much of it is, is just showing up is having a conversation. I was telling someone the other day, like right now we're in this age of webinars offered every hour. And at the end of every webinar, there is a, a, people put their email address and it's so rare to actually get contacted after a webinar to say, I really enjoyed this and I have a question about this particular thing. Hmm. And I've recommended it to young people, find the topics that you're interested in and write, write an email, introduce yourself. Like that's the easiest thing you can do. And because it's so rare, um, you know, chances are you're going to hear back. And if you don't hear back because you know, yes, people are busy and sometimes things get lost in the shuffle, but if you don't hear back, what was the investment lost? So right. I think, I feel like even putting out yourself out there, remembering that if you've met somebody and had a conversation with them and a year later, something interesting came out of that, write them back, let them know, thank them yep. for, for contributing on that small part of your journey. Um, bring them along with you. It will, it will make them smile to know that you've thought of them and that they helped in some small way. And it only then builds your network and your, you know, as I mentioned before, your work family, because sure. we, it is the only way, you know, communication makes the world go around, right? Yeah. Just connect really. That's, Absolutely. That's, that's the thing. Um, well, I'm glad you talked about that a little bit. It's, it, I think it's a really big deal and it's on my mind so much right now because of COVID-19 and how a lot of internships and other things have been disrupted. So there's a lot of, I've been hearing a lot of discussion about um, you know, virtual mentorships and what that can look like and how we can, you know, maybe make that more of a thing now just to reach out, you know, lots of recent architecture grads and others who aren't really sure what they're doing next. And there, so there's a big, I think there's a moment here and maybe it's a little easier for people to email than walk up to someone if they feel shy mm -hmm. about it. <laughs> True. But I also, I also wanted to ask, um, who you are most inspired by these days in terms of leaders. And these could be climate leaders, built environment leaders, or really anyone that inspires you. Yeah, I guess it gets back to the mentorship issue. I mean, for me, I'm most inspired by the people who are truly fueled by their convictions and their passion for climate action. So the people that kind of get me to tears are the ones that aren't looking for the platforms or the recognition, but and they might not be the names, but they're propelled by the desire to make the world a better place. And there's so many people who are committed to this critical work. And to me, that's, that's who I'm in awe of and who I'm inspired by. Like I can be at a conference and um, someone will have overheard me in a conversation and they'll just want to join in the conversation and they'll start telling me things that they're doing. And I, I, I have in those moments, you know, broken into tears. I think, you know, um, when I created a, a program called the Ambassador Network for the Living Future Institute years ago. And gosh, I think we, we launched that back in like 2009 or something. And the whole idea was uh, kind of taking a page out of the train the trainer model for mm -hmm. people to find how they fit into their local community and can educate 
others about topics that are important and help them find ways to action. And I've had people um, talk about what they do as, as an ambassador, um, not, not just for the Institute itself, but really for the tenets of the program, those core values of restorative systems. And that's really when I, when I lose it, when I break into tears, because I know that that framework, which has connected them to like-minded thinkers and doers all over the world, gave them a space to feel comfortable and confident. Um, and to me, the fact that they're doing it out of their own volition, they're not doing it, um, you know, for, the, for a paycheck. They're not doing it necessarily because um, they're going to get an extra star at their name. They're doing it because they can't keep themselves from doing it. And to me, mm -hmm. those are the folks that I, I think of as, as the leaders. That's an awesome shout out for all the, <laughs> all of those, all of those heroes out there. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's so incredibly inspiring. I totally agree with you. Just um, what, what a movement this, this is in many ways, how many people just do the work every day. Um, yeah, well, thank you. That is about as much time as we have today. It's been lovely to have you, Eden. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I always love chatting with you too. <laughs> yeah, it, likewise. I mean, man, it's just, there's so many things. Uh, I'm starting to feel like that all of our friends on the East Coast are going to get jealous that we all get to sit around and, you know, our relatively nice weather and talk to each other about, you know, uh, systems thinking and movements and, you know, resource reuse, all, all, the, all the good stuff. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're truly lucky. We're truly we are. Very yeah, lucky. We True. Are. Um, well, all right. Uh, that is it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week. <laughs>